Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. So he's gone. He's resigned. I mean, what do we have to do? Wait, wait for another few months whilst he takes the wallpaper down. She's, I'm loving this. What an exit. The, the Prime Minister forgot that his whip was a sexual predator. No answer to that one. No answer, no humility, no meaningful apology. For days, just more Dickensian twaddle and a little reshuffle. Not so much reshuffling deck chairs on the Titanic, more reshuffling on a cat litter tray. And the manner of his departure should tell you everything you need to know. No dignity, just desperation and delusion and a despotic disposal to cling to power, no matter the harm to our country. What's going on with Boris Johnson's reluctant resignation in the UK and ensuing pandemonium while attempting to channel it comically, or at least satirically? We'll be hearing more about that, so stay tuned. But meanwhile, as something's happening there and here as well. Something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going Nobody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speaking their minds Are getting so much resistance from behind Time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going And that was Buffalo Springfield with what has since become a classic anthem of mass protests in this country. And our guest on Arts Express is a renowned musician who was part of Buffalo Springfield, then ventured out on his own and eventually teaming up as Loggins and Messina. And phoning in from Tennessee is Jim Messina. He'll be talking about his current national tour in progress and his latest album, 50 Years of Hits a Buffalo Springfield and Poco compilation. Messina looks back on his musical journey in life and, quote, The best thing about being with Buffalo Springfield was that I got a chance to work with some very talented people, Neil Young and Steve Stills, and the worst thing was experiencing us breaking up. Here's Jim Messina. Hello, Jim Messina, and welcome. Thank you. And where are you calling from? I'm calling in from Tennessee. Oh, from which city? Uh, Franklin. Oh, okay. And what can listeners anticipate with your new album, In the Groove? Well, you'll find uh, a, a host of material from Buffalo Springfield, mm. Poco, Logs Messina, and a lot of my solo stuff. And I have uh, a guest artist on there, Rusty Young, who was in Poco with me, who's performing on some of the Springfield Poco and Logs Messina songs. And what about your music tour, described as 50 Years of Hits? How did you go about selecting what to include? My music tour? Well, I, I, I actually create uh, songs from, from my past. Like I said, I'll, I'll put in probably songs like Kind Woman, <clears throat> You Better Think Twice from Poco, Angry Eyes from Larkins and Messina, um, Your Mama Don't Dance, uh, some of our acoustic stuff, Danny's song, House of the Corner, just a, a, a potpourri of, of, of music that most of our listeners have, have enjoyed, mm. uh, especially uh, City Winery, Fairfield, Connecticut, New Jersey. So check my website, jimmessina.com, for more clues as to where I'll be. And what was the best thing and the worst thing about being in Buffalo Springfield? Well, the best thing was that I got a chance to work with some very, very talented people, Neil Young, Stephen Steele, uh, Richie Furet, um, 
and and I, I loved making the album that I did there. And the worst thing was uh, uh, experiencing us breaking up. And when you look back on your amazing career, what stands out most for you, your musical journey through the decades? Well, it all stands out for me because I have almost total recall. So I can remember from the day I went, you know, moved to L.A. to the day I, I decided to stop with Kenny in 1976. And, and I, I must say, it's all been a tremendous amount of hard work, but a tremendous amount of success, uh, uh, all of which I've enjoyed. And what do you feel is the legacy of that enormously creative and original musical renaissance back then that you were so much a part of? Boy, that's a difficult question. The legacy of the of the of the '60s and '70s, I think, was one of which was awakening, creativity, artistic uh, endowments in terms of <clears throat> what we <clears throat> create for people. But it also was a time where we were very particular in terms of our arrangements and uh, spent a lot of time making sure things sounded good with the best that they could be. Um, once we moved into the digital age and started making MP3s, things are, are different. And um, um, I, I think um, things have changed. And I do believe that they will get back to that same thing because it it, it moves in cycles, you know, depending on our tools and time and the money we have. But um, art is art, and we'll find a way to find some way of scratching it out on the wall with whatever we can find. What can you say about your reunion show with Kenny Loggins? What led you to perform together and what you're presenting and performing? Well, what, what led to us getting together was we had, our agents had talked about us doing some touring. And uh, it, it was just not... In the, in the cards uh, for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons is that Kenny has been really working hard to get a book done that he's getting to, ready to release. Uh, and he also had uh, this movie Top Gun coming out where his music was coming in and he wanted to spend some time to promote that. So uh, I suggested, how about, we, how about we just do a show someplace where we can enjoy ourselves. It's not gonna be a lot of traveling. Um, and, 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 and actually closer to town where he's living so it, it wouldn't interrupt his schedule. So the idea was uh, they suggested, well, how about the Hollywood Bowl? And I said, well, that sounds great. And, you know, but to do two hours was going to be very, very difficult to, to do. So I, I suggested, why don't we just do a, a Kenny Logs with Jim Messina sitting in uh, where we're pulling most of the stuff that we did from our first album and a few of the tunes that we've had with hits over. We could do 60 minutes and then give Kenny a chance to do 60 minutes of, of Kenny Loggins and that would promote his show uh, as far as his book and the other things. And so we all thought that would be a good idea and a good fun way to find out whether or not uh, a show like this, uh, uh, again, with he and I performing together would, would uh, you know, take root, and I and I think if it did, it would not be what we've seen in the past, where we get on the road and do you know sixty dates. Uh, I see it more in the future. Uh, if we do do something more, I, I see you know something at Jones Beach. I see something, uh, you know, may, maybe at Red Rocks. And your website? What can people find on your website? Well, they can find uh, uh, ways in which to. Uh, you know, hear my music, uh, they'll find the uh, photos of the band I perform with. I recently had the uh, Van, uh, my, I'm also a fine artist, so my paintings have recently went on display at the Van Gogh Immersive in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, some of my uh, works, my series of the Taos Pueblo and my watercolors, so I'm kind of excited about that to see how that's going to start to to unveil, but I think people will be able to see some of my art on my website too. And any last words about your upcoming tour, your new album, and your reunion with Kenny Loggins? Well, I'm performing uh, performing some of my uh, music from Buffalo Springfield, from Poco, from Loggins Messina, um, and uh, in New Jersey playing a festival out there, which I think is going to be a lot of fun headlining that show. And as far as the stuff with Kenny, I'm looking forward to doing some of the songs that we did together on the Sitting In album, as well as those songs that were People know as hits that were recorded later, but I think there'll be a nice mixture of, of an evening of, of uh, emotional 
enjoyment for people who loved hearing our song. Okay, thank you, Jimacita, for calling into our show. Thank you so much. People smile and tell me I'm the lucky one And we've just begun Think I'm gonna have a son He will be like she and me as free as a dove Conceived in love Sun is gonna shine above Even though we ain't got money I'm so in love with honey Everything will bring a change In the morning when I rise Bring a tear of joy to my eyes And tell me everything's gonna be alright Seems as though a month ago I was beta guy Never got high Oh, was a sorry guy now a smile, a face, a girl that shares my name Yeah, now I'm through with the game This boy will never be the same And again, information on Messina's new album and current tour is at jimmessina.com. And coming up next on Arts Express, what exactly is going on over in the UK with Boris Johnson being, well, driven out of office on charges of assorted scandals? Never mind all the death he's directed around the world. That didn't seem to matter. Apparently on the case more than anybody else, it seems, is fictional intrepid reporter Jonathan Pine sorting things out with Bye Bye Boris. 
Boris leaves in disgrace for what we always knew him to be, a sad little liar, a Shakespearean tragedy written by monkeys on typewriters. Let's give a listen. So he's gone. He's resigned. I mean, what do we have to do? Wait, wait for another few months whilst he takes the wallpaper down? I'm loving this. What an exit. The, the Prime Minister forgot that his whip was a sexual predator. No answer to that one. No answer, no humility, no meaningful apology. For days, just more Dickensian twaddle and a little reshuffle. Not so much reshuffling deck chairs on the Titanic, more reshuffling on a cat litter tray. And the manner of his departure should tell you everything you need to know. No dignity, just desperation and delusion and a despotic disposal to cling to power, no matter the harm to our country. A Tory party facing the inevitable truth that they have been complicit in enabling one of the most dangerously incompetent and untrustworthy the selfish individuals ever to have occupied number 10 for as long as they have. And what's beautiful is it was the lying that got him in the end. He leaves in disgrace as well he should, having exposed himself once and for all for what we always knew him to be. Not a statesman, but a sad little liar. A Shakespearean tragedy written by monkeys on typewriters. A Prime Minister who is as adept at lying at the dispatch box as he is to his string of mistresses. Every marriage Boris has had has ended when he someone else and got them pregnant. That's who he is. Lies on top of lies on top of lies. He lies and gets people to lie on his behalf and then lies about the lying. And when he runs out of lies, he can always rely on the incompetence card. I forgot. I can't remember. I don't understand what the word party means. My willy just ended up inside my secretary. Oh, I forgot that he's a renowned sex pest. Essentially, a man who would rather pretend to be stupid than admit his mistakes, which of course makes him a coward. A desperate, sad, talentless flag shagger who is so blatant in his dishonesty that when accused of lying to Parliament, he simply tries to change the rules to make it okay to lie to Parliament. Who, when his own ethics advisers resign in disgust at his complete lack of ethics, scraps the role of ethics advisor altogether, which proves his complete lack of ethics. But. The devastating cries over the last few days from the Tory party of enough is enough and one step too far are coming from the same people who have sat and watched him take a flamethrower to their party and our constitution for three years. Lie after lie. And, and, and they were thinking what? Oh, he'll get better in a minute. All of them talking about trust and integrity. If you cared so much about trust and integrity, then why did you put Boris Johnson in number 10 in the first place? All of the reasons they're getting rid of him now, lack of leadership, lack of morals, lack of integrity, lack of truth, all these traits have been in plain sight for years. His CV reads like a demon's resume. These noble cabinet ministers all falling on their swords. These that enabled Boris to be there in the first place. And just look at what he's achieved. Trust in politics at a lower ebb than that time President Trump told Americans to drink bleach. A government with a complete absence of ethics morals, direction or ideas, a ministerial code in the bin, an oven-ready Brexit deal that even Boris admits is unworkable, a Covid response that has been found to be criminally negligent, a United Kingdom inches away from complete devolution, an economy in tatters, a recession on the way, a health service barely fit for purpose, a country on the verge of a national strike, a man who took an 80-seat majority and just spaffed it up the wall in the name of human hubris and ambition, destroying his party's reputation and leaving the UK ungovernable. What a legacy. Chaos. He leaves office the most hated man in his party and his country. And even though he's resigned, he's still there. Just and we'll take our chances with the next useless, posh sliver of bollock skin who gets to shag their mistress in the £50,000 floral wallpaper gin palace and factory of lies that Number 10 has become under Boris Johnson. OK, well, we're, we're still waiting to get a clearer picture as to the timeline as to the Prime Minister's departure, but it is safe to say that there are...
And next up on the show, bro on the global television beat, the porter and black militancy, the Union Phoenix Rises. The best series of this television season is about the first black labor union in America and a nuanced presentation of class consciousness and racism on the rails confronting organizing the Pullman workers, as well as its incredible grasp of the history of the Jazz Age and the Roaring Twenties. First thing, shoes are important. No scuffs, perfect polish. And when you walk, walk like a man with answers, because whether or not you have them, that's who you have to be. Anyone's got a right to that stage, it's me. You think I'm out front just because I'm cream in your coffee? Try a little talent. Zeke, can you make sure that my husband stays out of trouble tonight? Don't I always. You think I need a partner? I think you need a man that knows every man in them trains. What makes you think you'll even make it to the door? I have been called the most dangerous Negro in America. <laughs> if I wanted to get deporters into a union, what's the first thing I should do? great fear of the white worker is that our elevation means their elimination. We are supposed to create our own opportunities. There are rules to be obeyed, Marlene, and I strongly suggest you start playing yours. When I hear somebody trying to sell me on a better life, I gotta ask myself, what is so bad about the life they got? I know y'all might be scared of what might happen if we do this, but maybe it's time we start thinking about what happens if we don't. You sure you don't want to work with me? Sure, you don't want to join the movement? The force of our oppression is the truest measure of our power. No one to be a bull-headed Negro, and we're not to be. I'm a Puerto Pepsi, the most invisible man on the earth. <laughs> This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, How to Organize a Union, the Porter and Black Service Industry Militancy. There's a contemporary wave of union organizing and union militancy in the digital and service industries in reaction to crippling inflation, which has seen prices double that of any rise in wages, loss of participation in the workplace decisions, combined with increased algorithmic control where even bathroom breaks are monitored, and overscheduling and underpayment for increased workloads. Union elections have been won in Amazon, where even a passive feat has been successfully challenged as the union phoenix rises from the ashes, in Starbucks and now at Apple, as well as pushback from drivers at Uber and Lyft. In Britain, the railway workers' strike, aided by its articulate and media-savvy leader Mick Lynch, is supported by the majority of the population, despite the fact that the British Labour Party leader, Sir Keir Starmer, he's royalty, warned Labour members of Parliament to stay away from the picket lines. To borrow from a Seth Meyers late-night feature titled The Kind of Story We Need Right Now, The Porter, a joint production of the public Canadian broadcasting company and the black entertainment network streaming service, BET+, about the organization of the first black union in North America, is the kind of series we need right now. Several factors contribute to making this the best series of the just-completed television season. There is the show's nuanced presentation of both the class and race problems confronting organizing the Pullman workers, as well as its incredible grasp of the several strands of history of the jazz era Roaring Twenties, ranging from the 1919 Welsh race riots and the outbreak of the Spanish flu to the 1921 destruction of black commerce in Tulsa, all viewed from the perspective of the set-upon black population in Montreal. Finally, the show weaves together four elements of black advancement in both the mail service economy of the Pullman Porters, who its lead character Zeke wants to organize, and the underground gangster economy who his friend Junior works to enter, as well as the female economies of entertainment and the medical and caring professions as its two lead women, Lucy May and Marlene, struggle to become singers and doctors. This series makes the bitter nostalgia of the BBC's Sherwood, except for its exposing of Scotland Yard's infiltration of the 1984 miners' strike, seem tame and tepid in comparison. All these struggles center around, as Junior puts it, 
wanting to get out of the box in which these North American and Afro-Caribbean peoples are trapped. The series is set on St. Antoine Street in Montreal and filmed in Winnipeg. And the street is made up of the black male Pullman workers who work for double the hours and half the pay of mostly white factory workers. And the glamour of the Stardust Club with its female dancers who also compete with each other for a place in the dancing line. The series opens with the death of one of the porters because the Pullman company is too cheap to hire enough labor to do the job safely. Not only does the company not pay for the funeral, forcing the dead man's widow to pilfer the money to bury him, but they also demand the workers pay for the cost of his ruined uniform. Zeke, the most class-conscious of the workers, attempts to negotiate with the company president over having more clean shirts for sweating porters, but instead the owner pleads poverty and grants the porters a water pitcher. It's this negotiation, as well as a stirring session with the black organizer A. Philip Randolph, that convinces Zeke, the porters, who can never even work up to being conductors since this is a position reserved for white workers, must organize. The actual motto of the porters was, fight or be slaves, recognizing that North American wage slavery was not in the end so different from the actual slavery in the American South. When the white train workers strike, Zeke supports them by revealing the company has secretly cached a trainload of strike breakers. Well, a shot of the impoverished, mostly black faces of these even more oppressed workers is overlaid with Lucy May's gospel song, I've Been Redeemed, in a way that also highlights their underclass struggle. Zeke is eventually undermined by the white workers who sell out their black brothers for an extra 15 cents a month and the ability to hold on to their more privileged positions as cooks and conductors. Zeke gives a stirring but unheeded speech about the debilitating quality of this racism for labor organizing. I shouldn't have been looking to my left and to my right for someone to blame. I should have been looking up, he argues, allowing that. We are at war, but the porters are not your enemy. The speech goes unheeded, and at the end of season one, Zeke comes to the realization the porters must organize their own union, the potential subject of season two, which has now been commissioned. While Zeke seeks to organize, his companion from the war, Junior, seeks to break into the illegal economy as we are reminded that the Roaring Twenties, when the economy was booming, was not a time of plenty for many black workers and their families. Junior struggled to move up in the Chicago gangster world, to turn the train into a rolling crap game, and to best a white conductor who attempts to cheat him are given equal time and weight with Zeke's organizing. The two are often intercut, as in the end of the opening episode, where Junior is beaten by other gangsters for trying to undersell illegal prohibition whiskey. Well, Zeke is rousted at an organizing meeting with the police breaking up the gathering by yelling, hands up Bolsheviks. The series refuses to condemn Junior's path, seeing instead his and Zeke's journeys as not opposites, but as two legitimate paths to black prosperity. Junior's more violent path, though, is partially explained by his Peaky Blinders-type PTSD flashback to World War I, and his rationale that he would be a different person if I didn't spend all that time fighting the white man's goddamn war. He is also from the Caribbean with its longer history of black independence, and when he upbraids the conductor trying to muscle in on his action on the train, who tells him his father was probably a slave who would have been whipped for talking to his master that way, Junior answers, I'm Jamaican, and no white man has ever conquered us. The series equally concentrates on two female paths to success, Marlene, Junior's wife, has to refute the dictates of Marcus Garvey, who wants to send money raised in North America back to Africa, where she wants to open a clinic in her neighborhood. She instead lodges her clinic in the basement of a house of prostitution, featuring Alfre Woodard in a touching turn as the madam, but finally realizes her best chance to help is by going to a black college and becoming a doctor, a kind of counter to her husband, Junior, in proposing the long game to his immediate hustle. The singer Lucy May, on the other hand, has talent galore, as she choreographs and performs a Josephine Baker number shot in Ziegfeld Follies overhead style, but which the crowd dismisses as obscure back-to-Africa stuff. She then contemplates passing, with makeup to look less African, and in the end, proves that she will do anything to get ahead. Her excuse for a betrayal is, someone's always going to profit off our backs, better me than him, which Zeke corrects as a kind of answer to both Junior and Lucy May, in this community, we look after each other. 
Finally, the series has a historical sweep that is truly breathtaking. It's set in 1921 and manages, either in the present or through flashbacks, to integrate the dominant currents of the era, all through the perspective of its black characters. There are cameos aplenty with the socialist black labor leader A. Philip Randolph, who Zeke admires being accused in the wake of the Russian Revolution of being a traitor and a Bolshevik. There's a Tin Pan Alley musical number Lucy May watches in a private home in a performance by Irving Berlin. And there is Marlene's dealing with the chauvinism, but also the black pride of Marcus Garvey. A burly white worker glides by in the back of a pickup truck with the sign, Stand by your clan reminding us of the resurgence of the Klan in that moment in light of the widespread acceptance of D.W. Griffith's celebration of the heroic valor of the Klan in the South and Birth of a Nation, a film which was hailed by President Wilson as like writing history with lightning. There's a newspaper headline recounting the devastation of the Black Wall Street in Tulsa by white rioters, as well as Zeke and Jr. enduring both the Spanish flu epidemic after their stint in the war and the race riots in Wales. Episode 5 opens with the Canadian Prime Minister vowing to uphold the values of white dominance, which resulted in a 1923 act banning Chinese immigration to that country. Equally, Zeke observed the Chinese waitress serving white railroad workers and telling them, you built the tracks the world runs on. It's just a shame my people died clearing the way. The music also is a compendium of many of the styles circulating in the era, the popular jazz and the Stardust Club, with a reggae soundtrack evoking the Caribbean influence on the block and the insistent sounds of African drumming signaling a link to the past. Besides the Tin Pan Alley sounds of Irving Berlin and Lucy May's Josephine Baker number, the Stardust Club also features a rhapsodic blues ballad by Blind Willie Johnson, a New Orleans musician known at that time as the King of Crescent City. The Porter is a complex series that, with its portrayal of organizing, of all kinds of economies, and a dense overlaying of historical discourses, points the way beyond the ever more limiting standard series with little or no sense of the actual issues confronting us in the present and with little regard for their origin in the past. The Porter's workers struggle stands in sharp contrast to series like Apple TV Plus's mega-honored Severance, which simply whitewashes that company's exploiting of its workers by posing a false problem of a severing of a work and leisure personality, while never raising the issue of how digital companies, like Apple, are not so slowly erasing leisure in pursuit of perpetual work, a problem that can only be solved by its own workers taking a cue from the Porter's recounting of past organizing. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And in our listener spotlight, composer-musician Brian Senti, in collaboration with pianist Hannah Rani, explores indigenous Latin American sounds on his new album, Manu, and National Tour, which can be found at briansenti.com. And now, a poetry break. Martin Espada reads, The year I was diagnosed with a sacrilegious heart. What we learn in school, hopefully, is not only how to think, but how to think for ourselves, how to think critically, in short. Uh, And that sometimes involves questioning authority, whether that's Uh, the authority of the government, uh, or even the school itself. Um, This poem is based on a personal experience um, which, for me, represented not only my first political stand, but my first political compromise. The poem is called, The Year I Was Diagnosed with a Sacrilegious Heart. At 12, I quit reciting the Pledge of Allegiance could not salute the flag in 1969, and I, undecorated for grades or sports, was never again anonymous in school. A girl in homeroom caught my delinquent hand and pinned a salute against my chest. My cafeteria name was Kami, though I too drank the milk with presidential portraits on the carton. But when the school assembly stood for the flags and stiff soldiers' choreography of the color guard, and I stuck to my seat like a back pocket snagged on coil, 
the principal's office quickly found my file. A balding man in a brown suit asked me if I understood compromise, and we nodded in compromise, a pair of Brooklyn ward healers. Next assembly, when the color guard marched down the aisle, stern-faced, I stood with the rest, then pivoted up the aisle, the flags and me brushing past each other without apologies, my unlaced sneakers dragging their tongues out of the auditorium. I pressed my spyglass eye against the doors for the pledge. As planned, no one saw my right hand crumpled in a pocket instead of spreading across my sacrilegious heart. Ceremony done. The flagpoles pointed their eagle beaks at me, and I ducked under their drifting banner wings back to my seat, immune to staring, my mind a room after school where baseball cards could be stacked by team in a plastic locker. Thank you, Martin Espada and the Academy of American Poets. And we'll go out now with the Arts Express Playhouse and a performance of the work of 20th century experimental poet Kenneth Patchen, the son of an Ohio steelworker who's been compared to William Blake and Walt Whitman, and, quote, with an urgency jumping off the page, grabbing the reader by the collar. I feel drunk all the time. Jesus, it's beautiful. Great mother of big apples, it is a pretty world. You're a bastard, Mr. Death, and I wish you didn't have no look in here. I don't know how the rest of you feel, but I feel drunk all the time. And I wish to hell we didn't have to die. Oh, you're a nervy bastard, Mr. Death, and I wish you didn't have no hand in this game. Because it's too damn beautiful for anybody to die. Hi, this is Jack Shalom, and that was a poem by Kenneth Patchen, a favorite poet of mine. And what I love about Patchen was his undiluted need to express himself one way or another. You can feel his urgency, jump off the page, grabbing the reader by the collar, saying, buddy, don't turn away. What I'm saying is important to you, to all of us right now. His father was a steel worker in Ohio, and Patchen's poems are unabashedly pro-worker and anti-war. And the other thread that runs through his poetry is this unrelenting insistence that life is worth living even under the most dire of circumstances. And Patchen should know he was disabled most of his life with spinal injuries and a botched operation. His poetry spans the time from the late 1930s to the early 70s, and he was an ardent pacifist during World War II. And after the war, as if words were not enough to express all that he had inside himself, he experimented with jazz poetry and visual poetry, that is, poems mixed with his own drawings and paintings. Patchen's poetry is just a bullet right between the eyes. And so now, Mary Murphy and I will read a selection of poems by Kenneth Patchen. What I'd like to know is... What I'd like to know is, with people put on earth, no more armed with hellish weapons of senseless murder than a tree or a river or a sunrise, why do we stand for it? Why do we go on letting these foul bastards pervert and slime over everything we're here for? War is evil. Agreed. Sure, that we all buy. But how about their peace? A little less evil, eh? When you can tell them apart. Why do we let these frauds and fakers get away with this loathsome muddle? Is this the way men should live? 
What we need to do is boot the bastards out. All of them. Every damn one. Make life fit for human beings. Not for what these lousy bastards want it to be. Not the way it is. Not the way it's always been and will go on being. As long as these filthy lying lice have the say. My God, whose world is this? The way men live is a lie. The way men live is a lie. I say that I get so goddamn sick of all these pigs rooting at each other's asses to get a blood-stained dollar. Why don't you stop this senseless horror, this meaningless butchery of one another? Why don't you at least wash your hands of it? There is only one truth in the world. Until we learn to love our neighbor, there will be no life for anyone. The man who says, I don't believe in war, but after all, somebody must protect us, is obviously a fool and a liar. Is it so hard to understand that who supports war is a murderer? That who destroys his fellow destroys himself? Force cannot be overthrown by force. To hate any man is to despair of every man. Evil breeds evil. The rest is a lie. There is only one power that can save the world, and that is the power of our love for all men everywhere. The Orange Bears The orange bears with soft, friendly eyes who played with me when I was ten. Christ, before I'd left home, they had their paws smashed in the rolls, their backs seared by hot slag, their soft, trusting bellies kicked in, their tongues ripped out. And I went down through the woods to the smelly crick with Whitman in the Haldeman and Julius edition, and I just sat there wearing my thumbnail into the cover. What did he know about orange bears with their coats all stunk up with soft coal and the National Guard coming over from Wheeling to stand in front of the mill gates with drawn bayonets cheering at the strikers? I remember you'd put daisies on the windowsill at night and in the morning they'd be so covered with soot he couldn't tell what they were anymore. A hell of a fat chance my orange bears had. Lonesome Boy Blues Oh, nobody's a long time. Nowhere's a big pocket to put little pieces of nice things that have never really happened to anyone except those people who were lucky enough not to get born. Oh, lonesome's a bad place to get crowded into with only yourself riding back and forth on a blind white horse, along an empty road, meeting all your pals face to face. Nobody's a long time. Should be sufficient. Someone may be a horse, someone else a bush, or a lasses jug we don't know from apples. Rivers could be women, ice, old men. Mountains and harbors could be bread pans for all we know. Lots of horse eat bushes, swig out of jugs, spit blue. We don't know from gas logs, anyhow. So gnaw your loaf and expect to have it too. But next time you go rivering, don't stop for no halfway crossings. Delighted with blue pink. Flowers, my friend, be delighted with what you like, but with something. Be delighted with something. Yesterday for me it was watching sun on stones. 
wet stones. I spent the morning lost in the wonder of that, a delight of God's size. The gods never saw anything more enchanting than that. Gorgeous, the sun on wet stones. But today what delights me is thinking of the blue-pink flowers. Not that I've seen any. Actually, there isn't a flower of any kind in the house, except in my head. But my friend, oh my friend, what wonderful blue-pink flowers. Delight in my blue-pink flowers. All the roses of the world. They turn every heart to stone. Oh, for the love of God, they dirty every damn thing. But I am saying that along the garden path moves a young girl who is as beautiful as a deer standing at the edge of a forest just as it gets dark. Jesus. All the roses of the world dance through her hair and on her feet. Tiny stars learn to walk in purity. But I am saying they turn every heart to stone. Oh, for the love of God, with what nobility does she show her everlasting kinship with every living thing? Oh, all the sacred wisdom of the earth rests upon her soft lips, and in her eyes is a country where death can never go. And when freedom is achieved. You have used a word which means nothing. You have given a word the power to send men to die. Only those who send them are free. You should have freedom stuffed down your fat throats. No one ever works alone. No one ever works alone. Put the good things here. There is so much, so very much, of trees, flowers, birds, the face of my darling. Hurry, hurry, the great tongues of truth. Oh, speak out against the dead trash of their reality, against the world as we see it, against what is reasonable to believe. Out with the rascals and with all their bloody works. There is a beautiful sun today. Have you changed for 190-odd dullards, sir? Look, you have a life. Use it. No one ever works alone. Hate and fear, oh, Blast them to hell for love every way and every old how you can. There is so much, so very, very much. Gate geese, the wind-opening hosts of air. My invitation, oh, come if you like. I won't forget your kindness. Live gently. Now is the I-wouldn't-kid-you time to stand up and count them. My conclusion is there is only one thing that matters, and that is life. No one ever works alone. Life needn't be ugly. I don't protest, great God, I demand. All this ratty, lying, murderous swindle of theirs be damned. There's a beautiful sun today. When are we going to throw the bastards off our back? Art has no place for lies. Jesus, the earth is real and it warms like a hand in the sun.
three green-white horses. Look, you have a life. Put your soul into it. When you buy a suit, don't just get something that will look good on your boss. If you don't mind, I'm going to say get with it. Live your own life for a change, eh? The leaves fall. The chances don't lessen. Nothing of flesh should be treated shabbily. I, at any rate, cannot resist trying a little one step even on the brink. What are you in terror? The baby fox goes to sleep under the thousand-ton tree. Life needn't step to their dirty tune. Each pays for his own piper when you get right down to it. You've been listening to poems by Kenneth Patchen, read by Mary Murphy and myself. All of the poems are by Kenneth Patchen from Collected Poems of Kenneth Patchen, copyright 1936, 1942, 1943, 1945, 1946, 1953, 1968, by Kenneth Patchen, and used by permission of New Directions Publishing Corporation. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.